This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters. My name is Alan Pierce, and as those of you who have listened in the past are aware, uh, we do these shows on the Legal Talk Network, and we're bringing you another edition today with our guest, George Flores. Before I introduce uh, George to talk about medical marijuana in workers' comp, I want to thank our sponsor, PI Now, to find a local qualified private investigator anywhere in the United States. Visit PINow.com to learn more. Well, our guest today is George Flores. George is a law student. He is at Penn State Law School, and he submitted a paper to the College of Workers' Compensation Lawyers' Annual Student Writing Competition. That was the winning entry uh, for 2020. It is entitled Lewis and Burgoyne, The Growing Divide Over Reimbursement for Medical Marijuana in the Workers' Compensation System. Uh, George is a second-year law student at Penn State Law at University Park, Pennsylvania. He's a graduate of the University of Louisville in 2018 after, and I'd like to hear more about this, a decade-long career repairing woodwind musical instruments. He founded the Penn State Law School chapter of If, When, and How, Lawyering for Reproductive Justice during his first year. He works as a research assistant to Professor Megan Wright on healthcare and health law topics. And um, during the summer of 2019, he was a research assistant to Professor Michael Foreman of the Penn State Civil Rights Appellate Clinic, researching topics in employment discrimination law. Uh, George's plans after graduating law school is to practice public interest law in Augusta, Maine. So, George, welcome to the Legal Talk Network and Workers' Comp Matters. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, you, you, know, you wrote an interesting paper, and I have been meaning to do a podcast on medical marijuana for quite some time. I've been following it because in Massachusetts, where I practice, Medical marijuana has been allowed and has been legal for several years. And in fact, we're one of the other states that also have uh, recreational marijuana. So tell us, how did you come to, to pick this as a topic? And were you taking a workers' comp law course at Penn State? Yes, I was taking uh, Professor Jeffrey Erickson's workers' compensation law course at Penn State. This paper was originally completed in part of for partial credit of his class. And I have a lot of interest in constitutional and criminal law and the issues that this you know, particular question raises. Kind of, there, It's sort of a three-way intersection between workers' compensation law, uh, constitutional law, and federal criminal law. What has been the major blocking point for workers' comp insurers to reimburse or pay for uh, medical marijuana that might be deemed helpful or even beneficial to uh, somebody suffering pain or other issues relating to an industrial injury? Well, you have this issue of federal preemption in these cases. There's a question of whether an order through the workers' compensation system requiring an employer to reimburse an employee for medical marijuana treatments is preempted and prevented by the Federal Controlled Substances Act. 
And the Federal Controlled Substances Act is a federal law that goes back probably what? It looks like about 40, close to 50 years. I think it was back in uh, Nixon's administration in around 1970. Yeah, I think it was 1970. And the purpose of the Controlled Substances Act, I guess, is uh, pretty much uh, embodied in its name. What does it do? It, it, it says it federalized the, uh, the criminal nature of uh, various controls, controlled substances and defining different classifications of same? Right. So it divides drugs into five different what's called schedules, one, schedule one through five. Schedule one is the highest um, that it has no accepted medical use, is unsafe and has a high rate of abuse and dependency. It's sort of depending on the medical usage and the level of abuse and dependency that determines like what level schedules get put on. The relevant portion of the Controlled Substances Act prevents the uh, distribution, possession, or manufacture of drugs on those schedules. And there's five schedules, are they not? Schedule one through Schedule five, and I think they use Roman numerals? Correct. Okay, and where is cannabis or marijuana uh, in terms of the schedules? So marijuana, since the Controlled Substances Act was passed, has been a Schedule one drug. This would be the, I guess we'd say the, the highest or the most potential for abuse, according to their definitions? Correct, with no accepted medical usage. Okay, so the, the research and the both anecdotal and scientific, as well as the passage of state laws providing for the use of medical marijuana, I know it started initially for things like glaucoma or other eye issues. I know it was also one of the, the, the reasons for it was for cancer patients, um, both for appetite stimulation as well as pain control. And it seems to have brought about growing acceptance for certain medical uses, such as pain relief. So has there been any efforts to downgrade uh, the classification from Schedule One to something less onerous? Yeah, there have been uh, numerous attempts over the last, oh, I guess, 50 years of the enforcement of this to reclassify marijuana as something lower than Schedule One. There are various ways to do it. Congress obviously could go back and amend it. Congress has not done that. There are also ways that you can petition the attorney general. The attorney general can take it uh, upon themselves to do it or the sec uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services can petition. Uh, mm -hmm. There have been various attempts using all of these different methods over the last 50 years, and none of them have been successful. Just, just for comparison purposes, what other uh, drugs or substances also are included, included as Schedule I drugs? So Schedule I drugs usually include things like LSD, psilocybin, things like uh, PCP, I think, is also on that list as well. So you know, we're talking about things that are viewed as typically very dangerous drugs. Opi opioids, I assume? No, opioids are generally scheduled lower. So most of the opioids that uh, people are familiar with are going to be Schedule II. Things like oxycodone, oxycontin, fentanyl, those are Schedule II drugs. Uh, what about something you know more street-wise uh, like uh, coke or, or, or uh, heroin? Are these still nevertheless Schedule II drugs because they fit into that chemical formulation? You know, I, I'm not 100% on those. I think heroin may be a Schedule II drug. I'm not 100% I'm, I'm not on that. The fact that uh, marijuana is still listed federally as a uh, Schedule One drug, would, would things be different or change in terms of the preemption issues if it were, for example, a Schedule Two, Three, Four, or Five substance as opposed to a Schedule One? Or does it not matter that as long as it is a controlled substance, it would be prohibited or preempting uh, state allowance for reimbursement? Well, 
if it was scheduled to, I think there, there would be medical marijuana programs in general would be very different. The way that medical marijuana programs work is that you visit a doctor and you can receive what's called a recommendation for medical marijuana. You can't actually be prescribed medical marijuana or any other Schedule One drug by a physician because they can get in trouble with the DEA because uh, under this law, there's no accepted medical usage. So it's the sort of weirdly formalistic program that these medical marijuana programs operate under. So the, the federalism mission may be different because the entire structure of all of these programs are going to be different if it was scheduled lower. Now, you, you made a point in your paper, and I, I'd like you to expand upon it, that even though marijuana is listed as a Schedule One substance under the CSA, the Controlled Substance Act, is there perhaps a laxity of enforcement? There is, and it, it's constantly changing. So when Barack Obama was originally running for president, he stated that he wanted marijuana to be treated like any other drug and to be enforced like that. Uh, so it sort of signaled like, oh, we're going to see a relaxing of marijuana laws across the country. There were also several memoranda that were promulgated by the deputy attorneys general while he was president. These memoranda stated a you know, that they were still going to enforce the CSA and that they generally would not target businesses and people who were in full compliance with medical marijuana programs in states. But there was a huge increase in enforcement against medical marijuana programs by the Obama administration over what even what President Bush did. So you've got this odd thing of what they're doing on one hand and what they're saying on the other. And then those memoranda, once President Trump became president, they, those memoranda were rescinded by Attorney General Jeff Sessions. Well, let's bring this now into the context of workers' comp. Here in Massachusetts, as I mentioned earlier, we are among the majority of the states now in the union that allows for the prescribed use of uh, medical marijuana. We have dispensaries. Uh, they're regulated. You need to get a, a medical card after an evaluation or an exam by a, a physician pay a fee, and you have access to various forms, edibles, smoking, uh, oils, different types of creams, et cetera, that com contain THC or CBD or other types of uh, chemical substances that have, at least anecdotally and perhaps even scientifically, some significant analgesic responses. Clients here, we have had cases go through our Department of Industrial Accidents and into our reviewing board and pending in the our appellate courts where even though an administrative judge at the workers' comp level might determine that uh, the use or um, payment for medical marijuana is reasonable, necessary, and related to an injury, that it has not been allowed because of the Controlled Substances Act and the preemption of federal criminal statute that would make it not available in Massachusetts for our clients to get reimbursed or to have carriers pay. Is this universal around the country that have had medical marijuana laws passed and perhaps give us the landscape and the breakdown of what states it might be permissible and in what states it may not be permissible? Sure. So I primarily looked at states where this issue had reached an appellate level. So it's reached the appellate level and been decided in three states, and that's New Mexico, Maine, and New Jersey. Maine decided, the, the, court, the Supreme Court of Maine held that the CSA preempts reimbursement in the medical marijuana system. 
and then New Jersey and New Mexico. Those didn't go to the Supreme Court of those states, but they went to the intermediate appellate level. And both of those states held that the CSA did not preempt reimbursement. Let's start with the first uh, jurisdiction you mentioned, and that being in Maine. What was the case that our listeners could look at the rationale for Maine finding that the Controlled Substances Act did indeed preempt reimbursement for medical marijuana under workers' comp? Right. So that's a 2018 case called Borguan v. Twin Rivers Paper Company. And that would spell B-O-U-R-G-O-I-N, Borgoyne or Borguan. And what was the uh, the employer? Twin Rivers Paper Company. Twin Rivers Paper Company. Okay, so that was a Supreme Judicial Court of Maine. 2018, was that a unanimous decision or was it a split decision? That was a five to two decision. Okay, so in essence, what was the the rationale for that decision? So they found that the CSA preempted this particular issue because if an administrative court required an employer to reimburse medical marijuana payments, they would be guilty all of the elements for aiding and abetting a violation of the Controlled Substances Act uh, would exist and they would be li- criminally liable for that violation. Now, there was a, um, a two uh, justices not agreeing, and I think in your paper you point to a dissent. Could you perhaps elaborate a little on the dissent and what the import of that may be in other jurisdictions that may want to argue to the contrary of uh, the finding in, in Bourguin? Sure. So the primary dissent is by uh, Justice Jabbar on the court. One of the one of the main issues, I think, with the majority, and as Justice Jabbar points out, is that there is a certain level of specific intent that's required for aiding and abetting liability to attach under federal criminal law. It requires purpose. It requires more than knowledge. The classic formulation of aiding and abetting liability is that it has to be something that the aider and abetter wished to bring about and sought by their action to make succeed. The majority relied on a 2014 Supreme Court case for its definition. And as Justice Alito pointed out, that's uh, Rosemond v. United States. As Justice Alito pointed out in his concurrence, the majority in that case sort of interchangeably refers to purpose and knowledge. So it, it's not at all clear that the main Supreme Judicial Court applied sort of the classic purpose formulation of aiding and abetting liability. All right. And, and for those of you who might want to actually find that uh, case, let me give you the legal site for it. It's Borguan, B-O-U-R-G-O-I-N versus Twin Rivers Paper Company, LLC. And that can be found at 187 Atlantic 3rd, page 10, it's 2018 decision. I think I'd like to next turn to the other decisions in the, in the other states that may have come out the other way. Before we do, we want to take a quick break, hear from our sponsor, and we will be right back with our guest, George Flores. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to this edition of Workers' Comp Matters. We're talking with George Flores. Where we left off was a discussion of some appellate cases and 
three jurisdictions uh, conflicting with each other on whether or not the Controlled Substances Act preempts the ability for workers' comp insurers to be responsible for the payment of medical marijuana. You highlighted, and the, the title of your paper, you talked about a, a case from New Mexico. Actually, there were companion cases in New Mexico, V. Alpando and Lewis. So let's talk about the Lewis case. You seem to find that to be quite um, instructive on the other side of the issue. So let's uh, talk about what happened in the Lewis case. Right. So the Lewis case, unfortunately, is not the the federal preemption issue is discussed in the Lewis decision. Unfortunately, it's not really addressed terribly well. It's sort of a very conclusory writings. The defense had brought up this eating and abetting liability, the exact same argument that was brought forth in Bergwan. You know, this was actually decided before Bergwan. This was for a while just the only appellate case that had decided this issue. And the appellate court didn't really substantively decide it. They sort of conclusively said, well, we're not, you know, that they just weren't going to deal with this and that it wasn't preempted. It's not a very fleshed out argument in that decision. So I guess is the end result that um, injured workers in New Mexico can have their medical marijuana paid for by workers' comp? Correct. And, you know, the court sort of looked at the equivocal enforcement. At the time, they were pointing to those the memoranda from the Obama administration that you know basically said they weren't going to enforce these as long as that as long as you know individuals and businesses were in compliance with those medical marijuana programs. Okay, and of course you also discussed another New Mexico case of Vialpando V I A L P A N D O versus Benz Automotive Services. What did that case do to set up the Lewis case? Right. So uh, Vialpando was decided before Lewis and. They brought up this federal preemption issue, but the defense didn't really bring up, they didn't really state clearly what their theory of preemption is. They just sort of pointed to the CSA and said it was preempted. There was no discussion of like aiding and abetting liability. So the court, the New Mexico court in uh, Villalpando said, we're not going to search for a theory of preemption. I think the, the main lesson to learn from that is that if you're going to state that the CSA preempts on this issue, you really need to state a thought-out theory of preemption. You can't, you know, point to the CSA generally. And again, for those of you out there who might be doing a little legal research on this, the Lewis case is cited uh, as Lewis, L-E-W-I-S, versus American General Media, 355 Pacific 3rd, page 850, and it's a New Mexico uh, Court of Appeals decision from 2015. Now, right around the time you had prepared the paper, or shortly thereafter, another case came down this year, I believe, in January of 2020 in New Jersey. Could you tell us what that case is and what did it hold? Sure. That case is Hager v. M&K Construction. That is from the Appellate Division of the New Jersey Superior Court. And that case basically sided with New Mexico in finding that the CSA did not preempt reimbursement. Unlike the decision in Lewis, this one actually substantively deals with that preemption issue. It primarily focuses on that specific intent, that the specific intent is lacking if a prosecution were to come forth, that the, it could, you know, it, you couldn't find that the employer uh, desired to bring this, uh, you know, a violation of the CSA about if they were only complying with an administrative order for reimbursement. There was one new argument in the Hager case that was not present in the Lewis case, and that's the argument that you can't aid and abet a completed crime. Basically, that once the 
person has already procured the marijuana and you're just reimbursing them for that marijuana, they've already completed the crime and you can't be found legally liable as an aider, an aider and a better. Do any of these decisions refer to the use of the federal postal system as being part of the giving somehow the federal government some added interest here or maybe cause the insurance company some concern about using the U.S. mails, for example, to issue reimbursement checks? Has that come up in any way or is that? That's not something I've seen in any of the opinions I've reviewed. Have you seen or are there any cases percolating anywhere in states that do not allow for medical marijuana to be legal? Or are we really just dealing with 33 states allowing uh, the use of medical marijuana? Right. I haven't seen any in states that don't allow medical marijuana, period. I've seen some other percolating cases. This issue actually reached reached the Supreme Court of New Hampshire uh, in a case called Appeal of Panagio. P-A-N-A-G-G-I-O. And I think the site you gave in your paper is 205 Atlantic 3rd, 1099. Yeah, so that's a 2019 case, and the issue reached the New Hampshire court basically at the workers' comp appeal board level. The appeal board issued a decision finding preemption, finding that the CSA preempted the reimbursement. But in that case, the appellate board didn't really state its theory of preemption. It just, again, pointed generally to the CSA and said it was preempted. So rather than deciding the issue, the New Hampshire Supreme Court remanded it so that that theory could be fully fleshed out. I checked again today. There hasn't been a further opinion issued in New Hampshire. See, do you see that this will continue to be decided as these cases percolate upwards in the 33 states uh, on a really state-by-state basis based on, oh, perhaps the mores of the state, political considerations, things like that. We're going to see a split state to state as to when workers' comp is required to pay for medical marijuana or not. It, it appears so. I think it's going to continue proceeding state by state. What about some of these other uh, substances, you know, even in states where you don't have medical marijuana, we have CBD stores, we have people selling products, oils and creams that have the CBD compound rather than the THC or minimal THC, that you don't need a doctor's prescription, you can just go in and and purchase a jar. I know that uh, I had uh, some shoulder issues and... uh, I bought a jar of uh, CBD cream. I didn't need a, a, a card. I didn't need a license. It doesn't make you high. It, I, it's sort of a, a better smelling Ben Gay. Uh, have there been any issues with, regarding CBD and how does this interact with our discussion regarding medical marijuana? So uh, CBD is kind of outside the scope of my paper. So I think there's, there's only four states where CBD is illegal as well. Yeah, so you have sort of these different flavors of marijuana ranging from completely illegal, and that includes CBD, to, you know, recreationally legal. There's only four states where CBD is also completely illegal. And I'm not, yeah, it's kind of outside the scope of what I was looking at, so I'm not exactly sure of where the the CBD landscape is. Well, there certainly would be no federal presumption argument because it's not a crime. Uh, These these stores and and, uh, places are operating... uh, completely legally, and it's it's a product. Uh, I have not yet had a case where I've had a client purchase a CBD cream and submit it for reimbursement, but I would suspect that would be decided by our industrial board based on whether or not it is medically uh, efficacious, and uh, we wouldn't have the Controlled Substances Act preemption issues. So I think it would probably be decided the way you decide on, on any other type of product that you might use for pain relief. Yeah, the only the only other thing I can think about in the CBD context is I don't, you know I don't know 
how well regulated those CBD products are, if they contain the level of CBD that they do. That's one argument I've heard as far as the regulation Mm -hmm. of those. Now, I know your paper uh, did not cover this, but perhaps this is another topic we could do in a future edition of Workers' Comp Matters. But we also, those of us who deal with injured workers or, or employees who are working, we also have issues regarding uh, drug testing and the ability of an employer to discipline or terminate an employee who might be using medically prescribed, legally prescribed medical marijuana for a non-work-related condition and violating a so-called drug-free policy or as this may relate to the so-called intoxication defense that employers or insurers might raise. So the issue of marijuana medical, non-medical, recreational, and efficacious is going to continue to be a source of of conflict and probably litigation. But I want to thank you at this point for at least giving us the lay of the land with respect to the compensability of medical reimbursement for medical marijuana within those 33 states where it is legal. And now we have uh, three jurisdictions that have weighed in on this at various states in the appellate process. And George, if somebody wants to gain access to your paper, is, is this available? Is there some way they could contact you? Uh, actually, it's posted currently on the College of Workers' Compensation Lawyers website under the writing contest section. Okay, so those of you who do want to uh, see George's paper, the College of Workers' Compensation Lawyers, CWCL, you could Google them, and on their uh, spring newsletter, there's a link to it. If uh, you can't find it there, uh, you can certainly contact me. Uh, my email address is apierce, A-P-I-E-R-C-E, at ppnlaw.com. That's apierce at ppnlaw.com. And with George's uh, permission, I'll gladly send you a copy of his excellent paper. I certainly will be using it the first or next time I have a medical marijuana reimbursement case, or we will see what our appellate courts do, because I believe we have a couple of cases pending either in the appeals court or our Supreme Judicial Court. So, George, I want to thank you. I want to wish you good luck in your final year of studies at Penn State Law, and um, you'll be a neighbor in Augusta, Maine, hopefully, doing public service law. Uh, are you a Maine native? or No, I'm actually I'm actually from Kentucky. My uh, uh, wife's family is from New England, so uh, we're uh, looking to settle up here. So. Oh, wonderful. Well, we will welcome you to, to New England and Maine, and uh, hopefully I'll get to meet you sometime. And uh, for those of you who enjoy these podcasts, uh, please listen, uh, continue to listen, and we appreciate it. And uh, at this point, I'd like to um, thank George and wish you all well. Go out and make it a day that matters. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Workers' Comp Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network. Your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.